This morning, as we've been making our way through Luke's gospel, last week we finished chapter 15, which has us in Luke 16, verse 1 this morning, if you want to turn there together with me. And if you need a Bible while we're turning in ours, you're welcome to hold your hand up. They're coming up the aisle. They have a few Bibles, and you're welcome to have one of those to be able to follow along in God's Word with us. In Luke 15, we were looking at some of these parables that Jesus was sharing there. We saw the parables uh, that really demonstrated to us the heart of God for the lost. And it seems Jesus now continues here to share and to do some more teaching as we come now into chapter 16, particularly with his disciples. This morning we're going to look at Luke 16, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go down as far as verse 13. And if you're turned to Luke chapter 16, would you stand together with me out of respect for God's word as I read our portion for Bible study. Luke 16, beginning in verse 1, regarding Jesus, it says, And he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man <clears throat> who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him. And he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill. And sit down quickly and, and write fifty. And then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, or by money, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And Father, we lift before you your word believing that it's what you have given to us by your Holy Spirit, that it is your will, that it is your specific word to speak to our hearts as your people. And we pray as always this morning, acknowledging the spiritual nature of this book, that we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand accurately what it says. So, Lord, prepare us, do whatever it takes in me and in all of us in this room that we would truly have an ear to hear what your Spirit wants to say to this part of your church that's assembled as we study this next section of Scripture together. Lord, bless your Word. Teach us now through the power and the present ministry of your Spirit and make application to each and every one of our lives personally 
Bless your word, we ask, and we pray, believing you want to and will in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm of the conviction that probably one of the greatest contributors to our society's problems, and there are indeed many of them, I think we'd all agree. I think one of the greatest contributors to many of the problems that we deal with is simply a failure of stewardship. It's obvious a lot of the economic problems in our country are directly related to simply stewardship, and in that sense, poor stewardship. It's obvious that a lot of the family and domestic problems that exist in our society and in our culture are the direct result of stewardship, people not having proper stewardship towards their marriage relationships and how they manage their home lives. And we could go on and on down the trail. And I think one of the greatest contributors indeed, as I said, to many of our problems is simply a failure of stewardship. Well, it should be pretty obvious as we read this text together, as we did this morning, that Jesus in these verses is clearly addressing the issue of stewardship, and particularly stewardship, as we'll see, in the area of finances, of material resources. And because that's what Jesus is addressing as we take our study through the Word of God verse by verse, that's what we'll address, and that's what we'll look at it from. You know, I have found, quite honestly, it seems in the church today, tragically, that when it comes to finances and resources of material things, that many a times ministries and teachings tend to go to two extremes. Unfortunately, we have all seen those who abuse such things, and, and they go to extremes and, and become nothing more than hucksters and begging and always trying to get into people's wallets, and that, of course, turns off those who are Christians and certainly turns off people in the world when that's the only thing that always seems to be the issue and the emphasis. And tragically, I've also seen too that as a response to that, some ministries and churches and teachers fly completely to the other direction and they almost become apologetic anytime money comes up in the Bible. <laughs> Where, where it's almost like it's taboo to even talk about such a thing and, and they almost want to apologize when the reality is, is Jesus talked a whole lot about money. And the Word of God talks a whole lot about money. It's not all he talked about, but he addressed it just openly and honestly in relation to how it has an impact on our lives. It's a part of our world. And here we see Jesus addressing the issue of stewardship. It becomes pretty obvious. Notice with me again back in verse 1. It begins by simply telling us, and I want you to take note of this, that he also said to his disciples. Now, chapter 15, it seems, was primarily being addressed to the complaints and, and the challenging of the Pharisees and the scribes, who it didn't seem were his followers or his disciples. But it becomes very evident as you begin chapter 16, verse 1, that what Jesus is now saying, notice, you might want to circle it in your Bible, that he is saying these things, it says very clearly, to his disciples. What is a disciple? We've said before, a disciple is a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. It refers to someone who has chosen to follow Jesus. It's not referring to the unsaved person. It's not referring to the individual who's still trying to decide whether or not they do want to follow Jesus as their Lord and Master. A disciple in the Bible is a reference to someone who wants to follow Jesus, who is desired to make him their Lord and make him their Master, and therefore they're committed to him, and they want to learn of him. 
And they want to learn of his ways that they might adopt them, embrace them for themselves. And that's important as we go into this text to realize who Jesus is specifically, contextually saying these things to. Not to the general population of the world, but he's conveying these things to his disciples in this teaching. And notice he begins in verse 1, telling a story, as Jesus often did in a masterful way, by saying, there was a certain rich man, verse 1, who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to that rich man that that steward, notice, was wasting his goods. Now, if you're a businessman, you should really love this passage of Scripture because notice, first of all, the story opens with uncovering some faulty business practices that were happening in this particular organization or business in that ancient day. It tells us there was this certain rich man. Now, important to realize when we talk about someone who is wealthy or someone who is rich, someone who's increased in wealth... It should go without saying that when a person eventually continues to increase in wealth and increase in riches to a certain point, eventually, as someone becomes more wealthy, they ultimately run into a problem. And that problem is this. When you increase in wealth to a certain point where you come to a place where you then have more money than you are personally able to actually handle and manage yourself, ultimately what happens is you have to come to a decision. Either I can give my time and energy that it's going to take to managing the money, the accounting of it, the investing of it, and, and, and the whole aspect of the stewardship of it, and that's going to consume all my time, or I can continue to give myself to the visionary aspects of bringing the business forward and, and you know, leading the affairs of a corporation or so forth, and you kind of come to a place when wealth increases where you have to make that judgment call, and more often than not, usually someone does what you see this man doing, realizing it would take too much personal time to manage the resources that I now have and have acquired to keep track of the affairs that I possess. And as a result, it's necessary to hire someone to manage the resources for me. It's necessary to entrust someone else to manage my wealth. And in that culture, a wealthy individual would entrust or they would hire what we see here in verse 1, someone called a steward with such a responsibility. Now, a steward, by definition, is basically someone who's entrusted to manage what belongs to another person. That's what a steward's role is. They don't own what they are managing. They are managing the possessions of another individual. They're entrusted to be reliable and to use the resources of the person that they're operating and working for, what belongs to another, and to carefully and faithfully take care of those resources, those finances, in a way whereby they might benefit the owner. To use wisdom, to be cautious and careful, and to use those things in a way where potentially that owner's wealth might increase, and that's the hope, and certainly, above all things, that they would never mismanage the owner's money in a way where the wealth would decrease or it would be wasted, in a sense, and ultimately lost. So the most important aspect of stewardship, it goes without saying, is this one word, faithfulness. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4 says that it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So when somebody's a steward of someone else's financial resources, faithfulness is the absolute most essential quality. It's required that they would faithfully manage those possessions and finances because it doesn't belong to them and that owner's entrusting them to do a good job on their behalf while they're preoccupied with other affairs and responsibilities. 
So faithfulness is absolutely essential. Well, this steward of this wealthy man, for whatever reasons we read in verse 1, has been mismanaging the rich man's resources. That's what it says in verse 1. There was a rich man and that steward, an accusation was brought to the wealthy man that the steward was wasting his goods, that he was somehow mismanaging the finances. A report came of the waste, and again, that's a very bad thing. When you have been employed and entrusted to be a good steward, to be a reliable manager, and the owner is trusting you to do that. That's why in verse 2 it says, He called him in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, he says, for you can no longer be steward. So as would be expected, this rich man calls in his steward, who he's entrusted to manage his resources, and he directly confronts him for what he's doing. And it becomes very obvious in verse 2 and 3 that he's firing the guy on the spot. He says, you can no longer be steward. That's it. In fact, what he's telling him in verse 2, in essence, is, look, you need to bring in the accounting books because you're being relieved of your position. So bring in the accounting books, turn in what you have because you can no longer be steward. Notice the owner there sternly demands in verse 2, give an account of your stewardship interesting phrase give an account of your stewardship and i can and i say this morning important for all of us to remember that we in some form or fashion will all have to give an account for our own stewardship in this life as we look at the failure of this man in his area of stewardship it's a great opportunity to take honest inventory and examine our own lives also because everything that we have, gang, everything that we have, from the breath in our lungs to the $1 bill in our pocket to the place where we you know, dwell in to relationships that we have to the opportunities in our places of employment, everything that we possess truly ultimately is something that we have received in our lives from God's allowance and God's gift. And the question therefore becomes, how well are we managing what God has entrusted to us? And could there possibly be an accusation brought against us whereby we are guilty of wasting what God has entrusted to our care? Wasting what God has entrusted to our stewardship and responsibility. Take note here in verse 2 that this man's wasteful stewardship resulted in him, what? No longer having the opportunity and responsibility to hold that position of stewardship. His wasteful stewardship ultimately resulted in him losing the opportunity that he once had in that realm of responsibility. It says he could no longer be steward. Well, verse 3 says the steward said within himself, he's starting to think now as he's being dismissed and confronted and realizing he's losing his job on the spot. He says, oh no, what shall I do? For my master is taking away the stewardship from me. He says, I cannot dig and I'm certainly too ashamed to beg. So here's this man now and he's facing a tough dilemma and he's forced to think about his own future and realize I better prepare for the days ahead because I'm now being released from my position. He has no other option than to seriously consider what is ahead of him. In a way, maybe like he didn't have before, all of a sudden now as he's being fired, he can't ignore the upcoming reality of his life because the circumstances will come 
whether he tries to ignore them or not. He realizes the future is going to confront him and he has no way of avoiding what's ahead of him. He has to face the future head on and more than that, he has to plan for its arrival because the future is coming whether he likes it or not. And therefore, he has to plan for the arrival of the future. He says, what am I going to do? I'm losing my stewardship. And notice, he knows what he can't do. He says, I can't dig. For whatever reason, he's, I, just, I can't do that. I, just, I don't have the, the back to do that anymore, the manual ability. And he says, I know what I don't want to do. I'm too ashamed to go out and beg. That would just be something that I couldn't bring myself to do. So he's forced now to face the dilemma of thinking about what's coming down the road towards him. Verse 4, it tells us, he says, I've resolved, come to a decision of what to do. That when I'm put out of the stewardship, they, that is others, may receive me into their houses. So after possessing, or processing, excuse me, all the facts of the reality of his present situation and the future that's coming at him head on that he knows he can't avoid, we see here that he ultimately comes to a place of making a decision, a critical decision. He says, verse 4, I've resolved what to do. This is important. He can't do nothing. Indecision is his worst enemy at this point. He has to make a decision one way or the other. He's losing his stewardship. He's going to be put out of the house. So for him to just idly sit around in a place of indecision would be the most destructive thing that he can do. The future is coming upon him. He has to plan for it. He has to prepare for it. And he has to make a decision one way or the other at this point in his life. Indecision would be the worst thing that he could do. He's going to be put out of his master's house. He has to dwell somewhere. And we see that what he does here is he wisely decides to utilize the value of relationship to prepare himself and secure the future ahead of him. That's what he's talking about in verse 4. He says, look, I'm going to be put out of the stewardship, meaning I'm going to be put out of my master's house, so I better do something so other people will receive me into their houses, maybe another job opportunity or somebody who will help him out when he's in a difficult spot and has nowhere to dwell. So he says, I need to make friendships and relationships to secure my future. Well, look what he does, verse 5. It says, so he calls every one of his master's debtors together, and he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, well, I owe a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, listen, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. Now, despite his prior failures as an unjust and unfaithful steward in his waste, consider, if you would, in verse 5 through 7 here, the cleverness of this guy's approach in a really difficult situation he finds himself in. What does he do? He's scratching his head and he comes up with this tremendously clever and shrewd plan to prepare for the future ahead of him. So he calls all of his master's debtors together, everyone who has a loan out, who owes his master money, customers and so forth, and he brings them together and he gives them an incredible chance to have a quick payoff at an extremely discounted rate. So he brings them together and he says, hey, listen, I want to offer you all a unique opportunity. How much does each one of you owe my master? And he starts to hear the different amounts that people owe. The first man says, hey, I owe 100 measures of oil. Now, many times they would pay their debts, not necessarily in money, but in the products that they produced. And 100 measures of oil was a really significant amount economically and financially in that culture. This is a large sum here. 
And he says, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a 50% reduction right now. He says, take your bill, sit down, this is a one-day opportunity, cut your bill in half, a 50% reduction, and he allows a unique opportunity for this debtor to settle his account and to pay it off right on the spot, which is an extremely generous offer that he's extending to this individual and to all the other debtors who are there. Now, often stewards had their commission rolled into these business arrangements. So what he could be doing here, shaving off to 50% with this man, he could just be shaving off his own personal commission, and maybe the debtor would even know that too, which the debtor would think, wow, that's even pretty impressive that you're willing to not take money and just satisfy what I actually owe specifically to your master. Either way, here's the key, it's a really great deal he's offering. This is a tremendous opportunity, a very generous offer, and this customer would really appreciate this extremely beneficial opportunity, and he would always remember what? Exactly who was the great guy that gave him this offer from a business perspective. He would always remember, hey, that guy really extended a great offer to me. He really helped me out, and imagine, if you would, Imagine how indebted he would feel to him. Imagine how in relation to this, he would always feel a sense of gratitude and indebtedness towards him. You could almost hear the conversation, if more were recorded, where this man who got a 50% reduction would say, man, thanks a lot. Hey, listen, if you ever need anything personally, you just let me know. And you could hear then the shrewd manager under his breath saying, oh, don't worry. I plan to. <laughs> and it's just a tremendously clever idea. Verse 7, you see the continuation of it. It says, then he turns to another, how much do you owe? And he said, I owe 100 measures of wheat. He says to him, take your bill, sit down and write 80. Again, another deduction, a 20% reduction off of his debt. Here's the thing. What is this man ultimately doing? When you boil it all down, what is in essence this man ultimately doing here? I want you to jot this down if you're a note taker. He's using his present situation to prepare for his future. Let me say that again. He's using his present situation to prepare for his future. That's the point and the major principle behind this whole thing. Using his present situation to prepare for his future. That's what we find him doing. That's why verse 8, it says, So the master, that is the one whose goods were being wasted, who just fired this guy because of the wastefulness, his master, it says, commended the unjust steward because he had dealt, notice, so shrewdly. So though the master fired the guy because of his misconduct, he couldn't help, if he were to be honest with him, he couldn't help but to still strangely kind of admire this guy because of how clever and shrewd he was in what he did in response to the situation. He had acted so shrewdly that the master found himself saying, by golly, I kind of have to <laughs> admire what he actually did in that situation. Well, to be shrewd, what does that mean? Really, it's a term that refers to just practical judgment. When you look up the word shrewd in the dictionary, it refers to the ability to use common sense in reasoning. Clever ability to reason things out to work out the best gain or advantage in a given situation. That's what it means to be shrewd. That's exactly what this guy is doing here. And his shrewd choices and actions actually impresses 
his prior boss, whereby his eyebrow is raised and he says, you know, I have to admire the keen business sense that that guy just used there. You can almost hear him thinking to himself or maybe telling others, you know, though that guy took advantage of me and that rat wasted my goods, I must have to say I really kind of admire what he just did once I fired him there. That was a really shrewd idea. That was a really sensible plan, a wise and prudent effort to make arrangements to secure his own personal future. Again, what was he admiring for? How he used his present situation to prepare for the future ahead of him. And this, hear me, is the specific point of what Jesus is holding out in front of us here in this parable or story in front of us. To Jesus, it is commendable it is admirable when a person uses their present situation to prepare for their future ahead. To Jesus, it is admirable when a person uses their present situation to prepare for the future ahead. I think that applies both practically just in this life as we journey through it in seasons, but I think most importantly that always applies foremost to making preparations for the future and the afterlife ahead of us when our time on this earth is over. So the question this morning that I should ask myself and we should ask ourselves is how well are you using your present situation to prepare for the future ahead? How well are you using your present situation to prepare for the future ahead? Well, using that example as a vivid illustration, Jesus then says... And here's where the application now comes to pass. The story's done. The application, Jesus says, as this man was commended for dealing shrewdly, verse 80 says, for the sons of this world, that is people who are unconverted and live among the world system, the sons of this world, Jesus says, they are more shrewd, notice, in their generation than the sons of light. And let me tell you what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying generally here that unsaved people who live among the world are always more wise and they're always more clever overall and therefore we ought to adopt and embrace all their methods and practices. That would be foolish because to do that many times would involve doing things that are ungodly and unethical and unrighteous and God would never encourage us to do things like lie or cheat or steal or deceive people so jesus is not saying hey we should adopt and embrace all their methods because they're obviously way more wise than us what he is stating here is there's a comparison of the sons of this world and the sons of light and notice he says the sons of this world in their generation Meaning the sons of this world, they exist and operate among their system, the system of the world. Sons of light, we as children of God, children of light, we operate in a different system, the system of the things of the spirit and the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is simply doing, he's not upholding their methods and he's not upholding their practices. What he is doing is upholding before disciples and followers of Jesus saying, you know what, here's what I can tell you. In comparison to many children of God, the people of the world many times are much more diligent in the way they operate among their own system. They're much more shrewd and clever in the way that they make their decisions and how they take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of them. And in comparison to many believers, the world's commitment level and use of common sense supersedes us by and far much more than it should. 
What Jesus is saying here is oftentimes people of the world are much more shrewd and clever in the way they operate among their system and far above and beyond believers use practical judgment in their business affairs and their everyday activities in ways to much greater extremes than God's people do among our own system and among the kingdom of God. And it doesn't take a genius to evaluate. Look among the business world. And, and in the business world, you have people who are diligent and take very serious how they reason out and make their decisions regarding finances and business investments. And they put a lot of effort into being very shrewd in the way that they handle their affairs and make their choices. They examine things and they know how to capitalize on opportunities that are in front of them. And they're very strategic in the way they consider what's going to be the best advantage so that we can advance and get ahead rather than fall behind. When you look among the business world, you see clever decisions obtaining the highest goals. They know how to get things done. They know how their system works and they work their system well. And because of that, many times they do well. They succeed. They prosper in business. And they find themselves being enriched simply because of their diligence in the way that they handle their affairs in the system that they operate. Now, in comparison, unfortunately, as believers, Jesus is saying, tragically, many times we can be much less shrewd, diligent, committed, strategic in the way that we handle our affairs as sons and daughters of light in the realm and the things of the Spirit. That many a times we don't take very seriously the impact of our choices as Christians. Oftentimes we're guilty of not operating in the most efficient ways. Many a times as God's children we are not strategic with what we do with our finances and our resources personally and as ministries. Many a times we neglect because we're half asleep spiritually the opportunities that are set before us and we pass them by and miss them. Many times God's people are too half asleep or lethargic or so in love with the system of the world, which they're not in, but at the same token, they're so in love and enamored by it, they're failing to miss all the opportunities to strategically invest and be involved in the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is weighing out the comparison and saying, sadly, our accomplishments, our efforts, our diligence, many times as God's people, kind of can pale in comparison to the way we operate in our system of the Spirit in the way that the people of the world are operating in that sense. And again, as Christians, the Bible says we are to be redeeming our time. We're to be making the most and buying up every opportunity possible while the time is still available before the trumpet blasts and Jesus draws us out of this world. And God would have us being wise and motivated to use our resources strategically to build the kingdom of God, to embrace opportunities and be strategic in the way that we seek to expand the kingdom while there's still time. Now, wanting to challenge his disciples on this issue, Jesus begins to instruct in relation to that, and he lays out in these last couple verses here some issues regarding living wisely. And you'll notice that he very evidently is addressing things like the use of money, like the use of stewardship and faithfulness and choosing who and what we will serve in our lives. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, and I say to you, he's making application now, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall, fail, they may receive you, that is the friends, 
into an everlasting home. Now again, that term unrighteous mammon or mammon is just simply a term in the scripture that refers to money. And what's Jesus referring to here in verse 9? Well, he's now making the spiritual application that he took from this man in the story, which as I said earlier, to emphasize, it's using one's present situation to prepare for the future. And Jesus is now using this, and in verse 9 here, as he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by money, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He's encouraging the wise use of money among God's people, among disciples and followers of Jesus, to use our money wisely, he says, because one day your money will fail, just like your life will fail, and then it won't have any purpose or impact anymore. See, one thing is true about money, that is the true, same thing is true about our lives. It only has a purpose for a set amount of time. It's, it's only useful, and the idea here is pointing to the day when money's purpose and use ultimately fails. He says that when you fail, you're trying to say that when it fails. The idea is same for both, because the truth of the matter is money can only be used as long as I'm alive. Once I die, I can't use money anymore. Somebody else is going to use it. They're not going to be very excited how much they get, on my case, but, but somebody else is going to use it. Money is a tool while we're alive. It's one of the tools that are on this earth. God entrusts it to us to manage it in different amounts and resources. And money is something that's a tool. It's an instrument. Money accomplishes things. Money acquires things. We, we use terms like money talks. Money is an instrument, but it's an instrument that can only be used while we're alive. Once we die, once we fail, our money fails. The usefulness of our money fails and it can no longer be used, it won't be used in the eternal realm in the same way it's used in this natural and present realm. So unlike men, important to remember, as that applies to God, you can't pay God off. You can't bribe or barter an eternal God the way you can make negotiations in this life with money. It's a different realm and a different existence. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing you can give in exchange for your soul. You can't barter a deal with God no matter how great of a negotiator you are. He's God. He's not a man. And when somebody dies and stands before the presence of God, at that moment, they're contrary to maybe what they did on this earth and negotiated deals and money talk. It's not going to talk to God. You're not going to be able to negotiate a deal with God. There's no price high enough. The price has already been paid. It was the blood of Jesus Christ paying that ultimate price on the cross. It's an offense to think that you could barter a deal with God. The highest price has already been paid. And for those of us who are disciples and believers, here in verse 9, as Jesus says to us, listen, make friends, make relationships for yourself by using money so that when you and the money fail, at death the idea is, then those friends or relationships you've made through the use of money, those people may be there to receive you into an everlasting kingdom. In other words, Jesus is reminding us, since our money only has a purpose now, he's saying use it strategically while you're on this earth. Not just for self-indulgence alone, 
but by investing and finding ways to serve God's eternal purposes. He says, so that use your money to make friends so that when souls are saved as a result of what we do with our resources financially, Jesus says, then those souls that were saved through our contribution and ways to the work of God, he says, those are the people who will then come up and embrace us and say, hey, I am here in the kingdom of God this morning in some way as a direct result of what you did with your resources to invest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus speaks of this wonderful reality. See, as God's people, we have to remember, Deuteronomy 8 says, it is the Lord your God who gives you power to get wealth. So, however that comes into our life, God gives us the ability to acquire wealth. And he gives it differently to different individuals. But money is a tool to accomplish things, and Jesus says it should be used for eternal and spiritual purposes. To use our finances as God's people to invest in ministries that share the gospel, to support and enable those who do the work of the Lord, to finance the things that God is doing. Listen, nothing wrong, nothing wrong with enjoying pleasures and things that you can afford. That's not what I'm saying. Nothing wrong with using your personal finances to wisely save in reasonable ways. Yet for the disciple of Jesus, we see here that wealth should not just be stored up and stockpiled in place of or instead of putting our money to work effectively while we can in spiritual and eternal things on this earth. It tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to 19, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. But then he adds this. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that when they may hold, lay hold of eternal life. Again, our money is as Christians, we must always remember, is to be our servant. It's not good to serve money. It's a horrible master, but it's a great servant if we understand properly a perspective and we put it to use in our lives. Jesus is teaching here that the use of money to develop spiritual relationships, souls being saved, brothers and sisters in Christ, is something that eternally we will rejoice in when people are there to embrace us and say, hey, you are one of the reasons I'm in heaven this morning. Because of what you did. That's why Jesus says, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Lay up treasure in heaven. And it's the same idea in principle. Look what he says in verse 10. He says, and he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Jesus, notice now, is personally illustrating that a person's faithfulness in small matters is always a reflection and a revelation also of how they handle larger matters. He's saying when you look at somebody's faithfulness in small things, it is a direct outward reflection of how they do and how they will handle larger affairs and responsibility. It doesn't necessarily mean when somebody's faithful in what's small that we have to entrust them with more. I think it's a good criteria for promotion oftentimes. What Jesus is simply stating here is how a person handles small matters will be the same attitude of heart and the same character that will govern the way they also handle larger affairs. 
It's just a principle. It's just a reality that if they handle small things faithfully, they will also then handle larger things faithfully and in good stewardship. If they prove to be faithful and responsible in what's little, you can bet they'll prove to be faithful in what's bigger. And if they're unfaithful, vice versa, in the same way, they won't manage larger affairs with good stewardship and responsibility because stewardship, faithfulness, reliability, or lack thereof, it's a hard issue. It's an issue of a person's proper perspective on things and how they value things. And if a person is mismanaging small areas of their life, they're being unfaithful, they're cheating, they're irresponsible, and they just assume that when they just get the bigger responsibility, they'll get really serious, that's a fallacy. Because the same hard attitude will govern them when they're handling the larger affairs as well. We have to learn how to handle small personal responsibilities properly and have a proper perspective and be faithful. And that's the thing that prepares us and helps us to govern because it carries over in the bigger affairs. I'll tell you, you can tell an awful lot. You can tell an awful lot about how a person handles their larger affairs by simply examining how they handle small things. You considering partnering with somebody? Are you contemplating could they handle this larger thing? My encouragement, examine how they handle small things because that's a clear indicator of how they will handle bigger things. It's an evident and an obvious thing Jesus says here. Look what he goes on to say in verse 11. He says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in, again, money, unrighteous mammon, he says, who will commit to your trust true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, then who will give you what is your own? So Jesus states here in verse 11 and 12 that unfaithfulness as well hinders a person from being able to receive or be entrusted with greater things. And in verse 11 and 12, he alludes to two examples of unfaithfulness in someone's management. In verse 11, it's evident that he's referring to personal management with someone's money. In verse 12, it seems that he's alluding to a person holding a position in an organization or a place of employment. He says, verse 11, if you haven't been faithful in money, he says, then who will commit to your trust the true riches? And I think there he's referring to eternal riches, that which really has value, spiritual and eternal things. If a person is not faithful in how they manage their money, their personal finances, that is, by being a good steward, or maybe they neglect to have any interest to invest in the things of the kingdom of God. If that's the case, Jesus says that indicates, if they're unfaithful there in their personal finances, Jesus says that indicates that they are not ready for true riches, spiritual responsibility eternal things that are of much more value in the sight of God. See, management of our money to God, management of our money to God really is a tremendous indicator of a person's preparedness for handling true riches, spiritual and eternal things, which are of much, much higher value because they're blood-bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And God's a wise owner. And God is an intelligent investor. And Jesus says, as long as a person remains unfaithful in the way they handle their personal finances, he says that will always hinder their usefulness in spiritual matters. 
That's what he's saying in verse 11. He says, if you haven't been faithful in money, then who would commit to your trust the true riches? God's a wise steward. He's not, he's not going to just entrust his, his true resources to someone. And when someone mismanages in that way their personal resources, God says, that is the last person that I want to commit eternal, spiritual, weighty, valuable things to because they'll totally mismanage all of that as well. It will ultimately unfold and therefore it becomes a personal hindrance and God sees that and speaks of that reality. And in verse 12 he says, and if you haven't been faithful in what's another man's, who will give you then what is your own? Now what would that mean? If you're not faithful what's, uh, of what's another man's, who's going to give you your own thing? To me, I can't think of anything else that would refer to than perhaps operating in a position in a business and organization that belongs to someone else. I'm operating in, in, as an employee in a business that belongs to another man or an organization that someone else is leading and I have a position. And Jesus says here, if you're not faithful in your responsibilities that another entrusts to you, then he says, why would ever the proper consideration be given to give you something that's your own and let you be in charge? Hey, remember this thought because I think it's very important. I don't think anyone is adequately prepared to lead until they successfully learn how to follow. Until a person successfully learns how to faithfully follow, submitted, responsible, committed, devoted, they're not ready to have their own thing. They're not ready to lead. And many a times when someone does lead before they've learned to follow, they make a tremendous mess when they lead. And therefore, Jesus is addressing that very reality here in verse 12. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, And no servant can serve two masters. For either will hate the one and love the other, or else will be loyal to one and despise the other. And then that strong phrase, you cannot serve both God and mammon. So Jesus validates the truth. Here it is, that every person serves something. Everybody has a master and only one master that ultimately all of our love, all of our loyalty and our allegiance will be given to whatever masters us. That one thing that masters us is what always at the end of the day gets our greatest dedication and our greatest allegiance. And it's interesting in verse 13, notice Jesus knows one of the greatest threats competing to the rulership of Almighty God is the Almighty Dollar. And he knew it. He knew the greatest threat to the rulership of Almighty God in a person's life is the rulership of the Almighty Dower. Because if money masters your life, you will never serve God faithfully. It's just a fact. Because you will always be driven by the compelling of that mastery to do what it takes to acquire and obtain money for most. And you will always be driven by that as your top priority. You'll never serve God faithfully if money is your master. Until you forsake that master. That's why Jesus said it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say it's impossible. But he said it's hard. It's tough. Because it's a tough decision to make. Now by the same token, when someone decides to serve God, guess what? Money's not their primary concern. Because they just have a proper perspective now. It doesn't mean they can't still be wealthy. There's lots of godly individuals in the Bible who loved God and were very wealthy. There are lots of godly individuals I know 
who love the Lord tremendously and they're very wealthy, but they have a proper perspective of their resources. And that's the thing. We need to make God our primary master and when we do, then money can be used properly. That's why Jesus says here, verse 13, you cannot serve God and money. Hey, question to ask yourself this morning, who or what is the master of your life this morning? What are you serving? Who are you serving? Here's the amazing thing. You get to choose. That decision is yours. You decide what you serve. Nobody else does. You decide that. So important to decide that wisely. Consider again this parable's main lesson before we close. What was it? This man evaluated a situation and he made use of his present situation to prepare for the future ahead of him. Sadly, many of us don't do that. It's one of the greatest mistakes we make. Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, use your present situation to prepare for your future in every way. Invest wisely in spiritual things. If you're not a Christian this morning, you've never chosen to serve Jesus Christ and to follow him, can I encourage you this morning, you need to make plans now to prepare for your future. Because you're going to face it either way. But you've got to make plans now to be prepared for your future. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, its message and communication to our hearts. And we would ask, Lord, as we turn our hearts in this song of worship back to you, that potentially, Lord, even as we're singing the rest of us, that if you've spoken to us, that we would, Lord, be responsive to you, responsive to what your word said to us this morning. Help us, Lord. We don't want to just be hearers, but doers of your word. So let us be responsive to what you've said to each of us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.